Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that'll be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word. Appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. Let me know when you're when you're good and settled. I'm good. Oh, cool. Um, first of all, Sonny, I'd like to give you a big, massive welcome to um, Let's Do Humans podcast. So it's an informative and educational podcast where I introduce my young audience to new ideas and concepts, whilst also engaging them in um, current discourse, so current cultural discourse, and just try to find ways to to inform, educate, and also motivate young people. Because um, I, I realized growing up that there was a lot of ideas and concepts and conversations that I wasn't involved in. And um, that lack of knowledge can be, it, it, it can be detrimental when you don't know what's happening in society, you don't know what angle to look at society and what angle to look at community in and how to, um, and how to get the necessary information to better yourself and your community. Because I think in order to better your community, you need to first of all inform yourself and then better yourself and then you're able to become a better person for your community. Hence why um, I started a podcast, because I thought I was a victim of that lack of knowledge, and now I've been able to kind of sift my way through that. So what I try to do is to learn from people while sharing that educational process with my audience. And um, I came across, I, I watch a lot of like talks online, I watch a lot of interviews, and that's when I came across um, your talk in particular, the Wolverhampton one on TED Talk, and I thought, um, it's something that I was always aware of in terms of like using your lived experience to motivate and inform others and educate them. And yeah. your, your your talk just kind of resonated with me and I thought it would be a great idea to share that concept and idea with my audience as well. But um, first of all, let me just check how are you doing at the moment. Yeah, I'm really good, man. I'm really good. I mean, I'm healthy. Um, I've got hot hot water. I've got a roof yeah. over my head, so things could be worse, you know. So yeah, I'm good. Most thank definitely. you. Most definitely. Are, are you at home with the family at the moment, or what are you doing? Yes, yes. Yeah, so I've got at home three young children. Um, oh. The greatest challenge is trying to keep them motivated and yeah. not going too crazy. But you know, like I said, it could be worse. We go out for a daily uh, bike ride. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I'm just you know looking at the positives of this really, and I'm getting to spend some quality time with with my loved ones. So that's amazing. Um, I, obviously, I was I was reading up on um, the um, sort of like most recent update in regards to like COVID nineteen, and they said we're kind of like over the peak at the moment. But I'm still always wary about lifting the lockdown too early because we don't know what to expect out there, and there's always the potential of a second wave, which we have to be like extremely cautious about as a as a nation and as globally as well. So, but how, how do you think our leaders have dealt? With um i think i think they've reacted um yeah. it seems as if that a lot of things have been just more reactive yeah uh, and what kind of concerns me is that anyone in a very senior leadership kind of capacity mm. should be planning for all sorts of eventualities mm. i mean nobody could have foreseen this um so I think on one hand, you know, the whole nation and the whole global nation is at the beck and call of, of people in leadership roles and positions to, to tell us what to do. Um, so on, on one hand, it's been difficult for, for leaders. On the other hand, I think there's, you know, we have to seek advice from 
anyone that's got more of an understanding than we have. And yeah. I think maybe there's been a little bit of a delay in, in terms of some of that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they're doing as best as they can do. Um, but, yeah, I think we've still got a while to go. Most definitely. And with a case of, like, in a, a novel virus, we're always kind of learning on the go. So no, no one really has the knowledge. So it's just a case of, like, us trying to figure it out as we go. But, um, yeah, before we, we get started, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Like, who's Sunny and what, what's some of the work that you do? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Sunny, and um, I've predominantly worked within the, the community and voluntary sector for the last uh, 12, 13 years. Mm. And how I got into that was that, you know, for over 10 years leading up to that, I was an active drug user. I was actively involved in, um, yeah, all, the, all of the things that are associated with that. So street level selling and, you know, basically my life was just going into, into a, a ditch. Mm. Um, and at that point, you know, when I reflect upon on, on that period of my life, um, and I can reflect now that I'm in a different place to, to where I was then, um, I, I expected the system to support me. And when I say the system, you know, all, all services and different elements of that system to be in place to support me. Um, but what I found was that, you know, a lot of the stigma uh, and discrimination that I faced fur further pushed me away from mainstream society. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk a little bit later about how that, some of that learning came about. Um, but yeah, I mean, now I'm a freelance consultant, I'm a, a speaker, I am doing lots of different roles with lots of different people. So, um, you know, I'm very passionate about drug policy reform, yeah. but not just that. I'm also passionate about race disparity, uh, looking at uh, economic empowerment, how we can get our communities to kind of um, who incidentally, you know, I mean, they've got the solutions to a lot of the problems that, you know, people in in, in ivory towers will be talking about yeah. how do we make sure that their voices are really influencing uh proceedings and furthermore you know how do we get people who aren't your traditional people to be leaders within society how do we give them a platform yeah. how do we you know uh, you know how do we get them to believe in their lived experience in particular and activate it and receive funding and set up organizations and go on to become teachers and politicians and strategic leaders and all those sorts of things. So yeah. my life is very much now kind of focused on, in those areas. Yeah, I think you mentioned something really important there and that's that's leaders and, and the disparity between the leaders and those that are actually facing real genuine problems that the leaders are trying to solve without having that actually lived experience. Because um, even even with the case of the COVID-19, I've got family members who are nurses, who, who are doctors, who work in the sector, and they all have the same exact complaint. It's like the decisions are being made on their behalf or by people that don't actually understand the issues and the problems that they're going through. So yeah. it's, 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 it's kind of, um, that, that's where that disparity causes a major issue. So how, do, how does a gap like that gets, get breached, though? And what are, people, what are the collaborative work that needs to be done in order for that gap to be breached, where those that are making decisions understand the, understand the problems of those in the front line? Yeah, I mean, I mean first and foremost, we, we need to be given opportunities to be in or around the table. Mm. You know, if we're not going to be in the room to start with, then, you know, how are we expected then to influence proceedings? Mm. Um, if I look at the work that, I, that I've done, particularly around working with drug treatment, uh, the criminal justice system, et cetera. Um, you know, it took me probably three or four years of patiently waiting uh, to be invited to or be allowed to, um, you know, sit around uh, and discuss things that were, ha you know, impacting upon societies. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
you know, initially I, I started attending, uh, let me just quickly explain. So uh, yeah. I detoxed um, from uh, heroin addiction. Um, that was done in the community. I finished it in a week. Uh, I then flew to Bali uh, the, the very next time. Um, I got married a week after that, should I say. Then I flew to Bali. Um, after you got clean, you got married? Yeah, literally a week after that. So, um, and then flew to Bali. Um, and, you know, numerous people offered me drugs in Bali and places like that. They got the death sentence. If I was still actively using them, my head was still in that space completely. I would have probably just done what I had to do and carried on using. Um, but anyway, I decided I declined. I came back to the UK and I thought, what do I do in my life? You know, what's, what have I got that that could be of use to other people. Now, all I had was my lived experience, you know, of what it's like to be uh, looked down upon and frowned upon within society, um, to have broken relationships with family members and distrust. Um, but, you know, what I did have in and above that was a desire to, to, to help other people to believe in themselves and to move forwards. So then I started frantically looking at ways in which I could do that. Um, there wasn't anyone or any single organization that, that was supporting me with this. So my journey was very much self-directed. So I, I found volunteer opportunities. I looked at educational courses, you know, things that would allow me then to, to, to use my experiences in a constructive way. That took me to an organization that had recently been set up um, and the, it, the organization was set up to consult with people that use drugs. Mm. So how wonderful, like someone like me, yeah, yeah. that had been lived that life all this time. Mm. And this organization, you know, had just been set up to, 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 you know, listen to the views and experiences of people that use drugs in prison, in the community. Mm. I want to say use drugs. I mean, use drugs pro in a problematic way. Mm. Yeah. So they're not people that just, you know, are recreational users, but you know, people who, um, for whom they're drug use. addiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then I, um, yeah, start, I signed up as a volunteer and I really enjoyed that time volunteering because I was interacting with other people, you know, many of whom I would have known from the streets and saying, and they're like, what were you doing here? Why have you got that around your neck? Like a lanyard and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm detox man. No, I'm just here to listen to your, your views. And yeah. um, um, what it started doing, I didn't realize it really, uh, the, the, the impact of this really was it started inspiring other people. You know, people who I'd been running around on the streets with doing whatever I was doing, now seeing me, you know, looking a little bit healthier, you know, a bit of colour in my cheeks. Um, so for, for about four or five months, I just, I volunteered and, and you know, did exactly that. I got some skills under my belt, some training, um, and didn't really think that this would lead to a career for me. But it didn't, it didn't matter at that point. It was more about kind of, you know, me enjoying that, that process of, of, dare I say, you know, living some sort of life of normality. Um, um, within five months, I went from volunteer to project worker to, to manager, and I was leading this organization. Yeah. So that was really quick. Um, and from that so point... Was that because um, you was guided through that process, or was it just, just you pushing for those positions? Did you have to actively push for those positions, or did they see something in you and then promoted you from within? Yeah, I, well, I think it was... Uh, a bit of a bit of both, really. I think it, it was fortunate for me that positions became available at the time that they did. Mm. Um, and, and the other part of it was that, you know, I really felt as if I belonged. Mm. Um, so because of that, that, that sense of belonging, but also that sense of wanting to learn. Yeah. Whereas when I was a young person, they were trying to teach me algebra, whatever it was. Yeah. I didn't really care too much about it. And so it didn't mean That's anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's interesting that I'm teaching my kids algebra. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but 
But when learning really came alive for me was when it had a purpose. There was a purpose behind it. Yeah. You know, I had a vision that I wanted to improve the lives of people. I wanted to, you know, allow other people to believe in themselves. Um, and then what that led to, you know, particularly once I became the leader of the organization, was a, an exposure to the whole strategic landscape. You know, so I'd sit in like the chief commander of the police office and have a meeting with them. Um, whereas the only time I'd ever been in that place beforehand was when I'd be in a cell. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, I was listening, actively listening to what they were saying and how they were saying it. Um, so what I had was I had people's experiences and my experiences on, in one hand. And on the other hand, I started understanding the strategic experiences of people. Yeah. You know what they were doing, how they were planning stuff, how they were looking at tackling this or tackling that. Um, and then what happened thereafter was that there was a massive difference between what people were saying sitting around tables to the experiences of people. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I would go along and say, you know, loads of people are telling us at the moment that they're having issues with, with housing or applying for this. And so somebody from housing would say, oh, well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Sonny, because we've got a meeting about that next week. Mm. And, you know, they said it once, they said it twice. But after the third or fourth time, I said, yo, you can't just keep having meetings about meetings, about things that I'm raising. <laughs> yeah. You need to be doing something. Yeah. So rather than waiting for them to change, I, I remember sitting down with, with everyone in my team. And it was a very small team, mainly volunteers. And all of us had had experiences like mine. And I said, you know, what can we do? What can we do more than just ask people what their experiences are? Because their, their needs are not being met. They're continually going unmet. Um, so they gave me some really wonderful tips, man, and, and ideas. They were like, yo, we need to do some certain qualifications. We need to be able to capture this information. So very much we worked together as a team and developed a way in which we could, you know, actually intervene in somebody's life yeah. and hold these services to account. Um, and that, you know, once I started working in that way, that's when strategic doors started opening. You know, yeah. You know, so, yeah, so that's... A, Sorry, I've gone off on one there, but that's no, no, a little bit about my, my experience and my background. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. So when you first went into the offices and um, let's say you went into the police um, station um, to have like strategic meetings, not just being arrested. Um, what, what was the major difference in terms of how they viewed you and how you viewed yourself as, as, as let's say, an addict of drugs? Mm -hmm. how, how were they, they views different to how you viewed yourself at the, at, well, in the past when you were taking drugs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean... There's a concept called called imposter syndrome. Mm. You've heard of that yet, but yeah. it's often when people, you know, think, you know, I don't deserve to be here, or how did I get here, or I haven't got the skills. Uh, so initially, there was a little bit of that, you know, there was a little bit of that thinking um, to say, you know, should I really be here, and um, how are they going to react to me? Um, but my my desire to see change mm. over override overrode all of those um, emotions that I was feeling. Now, you know, people you know, with the experiences that I had would, you know, and still to this day may be seen as quite, you know, um, you know, unreliable, might not um, turn up on time, um, might um, not behave correctly uh, and speak in the right term. Uh, so for me, it was a chance to actually model the behavior that that went completely the opposite of what people expected. Yeah. So, I, you know, I started like, you know, um, doing all my, all my back, background research. I started asking questions that were really poignant questions. Mm -hmm. So I remember, you know, in the in the early days, like 
you know, I'd sit in a meeting and people be chatting all this jibber jabber. Yeah, I didn't even know what they were talking about, to be honest with you. Um, but they were talking about the people that I cared about, people like me. Mm. Um, so rather than me sitting there feeling disempowered and thinking, well, actually, I ain't going to come back here again because I don't know what they're talking about. Mm. I started actually challenging them diplomatically, but challenging them, saying, well, actually, what does that acronym mean? Well, who decided that that's important? Um, mm. Why is it that this is seen as your um, uh, focus for the next two years when you've got these issues here and you've got these issues here. And what that started doing, it started um, building a strategic picture in my mind, a strategic and political picture of the landscape. Mm. Um, and, you know, some people wouldn't react very well to it. I could tell from their face that they were thinking, you know, who's this junkie think he is, you know, mm. coming in and asking all these questions. But it wasn't about me or my experiences. And with all due respect, it wasn't about you. It's not about you or your experiences. This is about real people out there that are suffering. Yeah. And unless, you know, we're going to you know, have these uh, challenging and honest, frank conversations and we can talk about all the stuff around the outskirts of things, but actually let's get, get to the heart of the matter. Let's get to the crux of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and if you, if you are open and receptive to that, then we can start devising solutions. Most definitely. Yeah. Um, there's something important that you mentioned early on, and that was, that was purpose. Um, through, through having loads of conversations with people most recently and most, um, um, mostly in relation to like psychologists and stuff, I realized that in order for someone to break out of something, like break out of a deep sense of depression or um, the need to commit suicide or um, an addiction, there always needs to be a serious, hardcore underlining purpose. They need to find that purpose. They need to find that sense of being important to society, being important to their family. What would you say was your breaking point and how did you discover that? And how did that help you to um, come out of your situation? Yeah, so, um, well, so I suppose, you know, at the, at the time it was, it was a, a very stark uh, decision that I had to, to make. So I could either carry on living this lifestyle and more than likely end up dead or in prison um, or I could choose life. And, you know, although I didn't know what my life would be like, I knew it would be, it would be better than what I was leaving behind. Mm. You know, not, never having no money, you know, going around tapping people up and, mm. you know, not having any self-respect, um, which is confounded by the stigma that I face within society. So, you know, one of the, a few of the key things that happened for me was that, A, I came into faith. Mm. I believed that I was safe from that life. And, you know, that, that gave me that, that, that sense of self-worth. Yeah. Um, secondly, you know, I got married. So then, of course, I had additional responsibilities. Mm. But then, you know, the other thing that was massively important for me was that a deep sense of um, injustice. You know, yeah. I, was, I was never a, a bad person. Yeah. I was never somebody that um, you would necessarily think bad of other people or do bad of other uh, or do bad things to other people, uh, but just because of my decision to to, to use certain substances, mm. society automatically deemed me as being either a criminal or a low life, and that just did not sit well with me. Mm. You know, I There's something that I would often say to people that because I've supported like thousands of people over the years, um, and what what was astounding to me was that. You know, there was a real trend in terms of the level of aspirations that people had. So, for example, people come out of jail, they'd be sat with me saying, you know, um, yeah, I don't want to go back inside ever again. Um, bearing in mind, you know, some of the stats around. Anyways, um, yeah. You know, it's like ridiculous some stats of people yeah. going back now. But then, you know, when I'd ask the question, well, what do you want to do? Uh, let's say, well, actually, you know, I want to be a barber or I want to be a, a bricklayer. I want to work in construction. So I'd dig a little bit deeper and say, well, why is it that you want to do that? 
oh, because, you know, I did that course while I was inside or, um, you know, no one else is going to offer me a job or my dad, you know, worked, worked in this or my cousin works in this. And basically what I realized was that people's aspirations were pushed further down by the experience, life experiences that they'd had. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'd say to them, they say it's a lot about me because they say like, oh, you love, you sound like you love what you do. And I'd be like, yeah, I do. Because I believe that if you can make your passion your profession, then work is like play. So what is your passion? How are you going to find that out? How are you going to be exposed to things that make you decide what you're passionate about? Now, that could, through, that could be through volunteering. It could be through education. It could be through, you know, speaking to various people. So for me, you know, I try, in my life, I did lots of things that I hated. I worked in in factories i'm not knocking anyone that works in factories but for me it just it just i couldn't do it i felt claustrophobic um i sold insurance door to door i've done like a thousand jobs and i didn't stick to any of them and the reason for that was because it didn't have any meaning to me yeah so when i found something that had meaning to me it was all encompassing you know i wanted to learn i wanted to work 70 hours a week Mm. you know i wanted to educate myself i wanted to learn from others and i'm still on that journey today most definitely that, that's amazing and um I, I definitely think your purpose of having family was probably one of the biggest factors as well because then you're accountable i think being being accountable as a human being it kind of puts us in a position where we have to then do well or we have to yeah. then push ourselves to do well and those that may be possibly disconnected from their families or disconnected from loved ones or friends in general like where they don't have anyone to lean on whatsoever it's easy for you to fall prey to that so um um, why, is, why is giving back important to you? Like, why, why do you take upon yourself to give back? Give back. But if I can just pick up on that point you made. So, uh, you know, when I started speaking to other people with, with my professional hat on about their experiences, people who use drugs, um, I realized that, not, you know, not everyone was as lucky as me in so much as I had a family. Yeah. yeah? Um, like, just absolutely what you said. So, you know, my, thought, my thoughts were, well, how do we mimic or replicate these these family networks mm-hmm. what is it about family that makes us feel safe and comfortable mm-hmm. um and in essence i mean i couldn't just like magic a family out of the out of the out of the sky for people but what i could do is when i interacted with them when they interacted with us and in my service it it would almost be like a family relationship yeah so you're kind of each other yeah 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 so so we'd make people feel comfortable um, maybe without some of the, you know, the, the, the judgments and things like that, we, it was a completely non-judgmental environment. But we show people love, um, indiscriminate love, you know what I mean? We wouldn't discriminate against anybody. And I think, you know, that's why the work that I've done has been so well regarded is because it was founded on, on compassion. Uh, and then just picking up your, just, if you could just repeat that, that the question that you had for no, me. No, I was saying then why giving back is, is important to you. Like, wh- wh- why is it the driving factor for you right now? Like, what are some of the experiences you've had that you're like, well, I don't want no one else to go through that. Or if I yeah. can potentially help someone to avoid some of the pitfalls I have, I'll definitely do it. Because so, yeah. so there's loads of people that have gone through stuff. I mean, people have gone through addiction, but once they come out of it, it's like, boom, they're just, they're just single-minded. But um, yeah. they, they, I just wanted to know what your trigger point is that makes you want to give back. Sure. Um, it makes me think of a quote, actually. Um, there's a quote by Nelson Mandela, which mm. uh, is, um, you know, he said something like, to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, mm. but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Yeah, and, and, you know what I mean? For, for me, it wasn't just about me getting well and getting better, because then all of my brothers and sisters and, yeah. you know, the people I spent all this time with and suffering and dying and catching diseases and going in and out of prison. So for me... 
you know, there's, a, like I said, that deep sense of injustice, mm. and it still exists today. It's still something that we're fighting against today. I mean, you know, I was very lucky to, you know, to, to be able to develop as a leader, uh, but that was often self-directed. So no one was saying to me, yo, go and do this course or look at that, uh, doing that. So I would, um, you know, apply for different courses. I'd apply for, apply for seminars, and I'd just go along in my free time and just sit in these seminars. Um, but back in 20, the end of 2015, um, um, somebody emailed me a course um, that was being held at the Geneva Institute in Switzerland. Oh, wow. and, and the title of the course was Drug Policy, Diplomacy and Global Public Health. So I signed up for this course. Um, uh, I ticked the box that said I need fun, I need sponsorship because I couldn't afford you know, the cost of the flights and staying in a hotel and all that. But anyway, I, I was successful and I went out to Geneva. And, you know, and what that did for me is it, it opened my horizons and thinking around drug policy. Mm -hmm. So for me, drug policy was all about kind of what happens in the UK and what the UK police doing, what the UK government doing. Uh, but what that experience did, uh, and there were some fantastic people that were involved in delivering um, this, this executive course. It showed me the history of drug policy, you know, things like back in, you know, the 1870s in the, in the States, um, you know, there were anti-opiate movements that were aimed at Chinese people. There were anti-cocaine um, um, initiatives that were aimed at the black community. Yeah. There were anti-marijuana campaigns that were aimed at the Mexican community. And it gave me a really deep insight into history so that I could look forward yeah. in a way whereby I had all that information and knowledge that would you know, add val additional value to what I was trying to do. So... That sense of injustice, you know, has, has taken me on a journey that's gone back over 100 years, mm. you know, and even <laughs> still today, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's massively relevant. I mean, not all that long ago, in 1971, for example, President Nixon um, declared a war on drugs. Yeah. You know, yeah. this message a few times, yeah. Mm. Um, but what happened is that war on drugs was nothing of the sorts it was a war on people that used drugs mm -hmm. and they were usually poorer communities people from ethnic backgrounds mm -hmm. that were being disproportionately affected by um you know the policy stance and the decisions that these 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 people were making mm -hmm. um so you know that that sense of injustice is, is there you know i'm not going to stop until drug policy is reformed completely yeah. um but it doesn't just stop at drug policy we need to be much more um, considerate of the uh, levels of inequality that exist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just going to throw some, something else random at you. I'm doing a, another course at the moment, looking at the history of the NHS. And in, 19, uh, in, in, in the 1936, uh, a law was passed, uh, passed called the, the Poor Law. And this law was set up so that, you know, people who couldn't ha didn't have an income, who couldn't work, who were ill or disabled, um, would be supported by what, local parishes, which what today are local authorities. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, it's interesting that, you know, a couple hundred years ago, this law was passed, but still today, 2020, we're still facing the same level of inequality. Yeah. Okay, we've got certain systems like your NHS, Department of Work and Pensions, welfare system, all that sort of stuff. Um, but that, that sense of, you know, certain sections of our society being very poor is still very relevant today. Mm. So new version of this law, you know, we need a new version with um, more uh, tangible ways in which we can help and support communities so that they can become self-sufficient. Yeah. So these kind of things still drive me. So initially it was around using my experiences to give back, um, but it's grown into something much broader and wider than that once I've you know, been exposed to certain information. 
Yeah, I, I think policy change is, is essential when solving any issue because, um, so a friend of mine um, gave me a quote the other day, which um, is kind of stuck with me now, and I realise it kind of goes across the whole board. He's like, he's like, with a lot of societal issues, we, we're trying to heal a leg wound by, by operating on the arm. So it's yeah. like we're not hitting the mark. So we're focusing on, the, on, on something completely different on where the actual focus should be. So, yeah. for instance, because we, we're discussing um, race issues and particularly within the black community and sure. we had brought up a topic and, he's, and we looked at what we've done is so this is some of the board stuff I do when I'm with my, when I'm with my um, academic friends. So we, we were looking at a scale of debates and arguments going across Twitter in, in relation to the black community. And yeah. um, we realized that the focus in, in one particular thing, which I won't bring up in this conversation, but it was completely different to what the core issue was. And no mm -hmm. one was actually mentioning the core issue. So in, in relation to your, your um, um, field of work, so yeah. we, we know there's a, there's, a, there's a drug use issue, there's a drug abuse issue, there, there's loads of issues. Um, where do you think the focus is at the moment? And where does the policy need to be changed in order to have the most effect in solving the problem? Yeah. yeah. So at the moment, if you look at um, drug use um, from, with a medical hat on, Mm. Um, the, 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 the treatment of people with dro uh, drug and alcohol issues is very much uh, based around the medical interventions. Mm. Um, in the same way that when I was in, in treatment, um, you know, I'd be given certain medic medications. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, medicine cannot solve social issues. Yeah. You know, in the same way as that, that you know, the, the, uh, what you described, you know, you can't just medicalize your way out of, uh, out of addiction. There's a whole heap of other things that need to take place. You know, you need somewhere safe to live. You need good social networks. Yeah. Um, you need the, the police to understand what addiction is rather than just being, de you know, the person that lies behind that addiction rather than just, you know, the, the criminal element of it. So I think for me, you know, policy wise, I think we need to look at at the very least decriminalization. Uh, so that somebody caught with a relatively small amount uh, on, on their person and not dealt with by the, the criminal justice system, rather, you know, signposted and supported to access the health-based system, which is something they did in Portugal in 2001, and drug use went down, the number of people going to prison went down, the number of deaths went down, the number of, um, you know, harms associated what with What exactly they did? What was the exact policy that they implemented? And that's what they did. They decriminalised drugs. Decriminalised, yeah. Yeah, decriminalised it, man. Uh, I've been out to other countries as well, like Switzerland, where they have... Um, safer inject injecting facilities mm -hmm. uh, and safe drug use facilities. So people go into a, it, it was crazy, man. It's like this big green, massive building. It looks like a, a, a gigantic shoebox yeah. behind the train station. Oh, and it's wow. like bright green, like lime green. I was walking up, I was like, yo, that can't be it. And there's a whole lot of rental. And um, there's a few bus and, um, and we visited it and they were kind enough to let us go in. Mm. Um, but basically, they, they, what they do is, in a dignified way, offer people yeah. an opportunity to go and use their drugs. Oh, wow. And, and was nobody supervised by doctors and professionals? Social workers, okay. nurses, doctors, you know, a variety of people. Mm. Um, and, mm. yeah, I mean, it was astounding to, to, to realise that not one person has ever died of a drug-related overdose in their supervised consumption faci facility. And, and then you've got, you've got dozens of these around the world. You know, Switzerland's not the only one. They the actual drugs, do they? Pardon? They don't provide the actual drugs, do they? They just provide the environment. No, no, no. They just provide a safe space. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's something that we've been, we've been championing here in the UK. Um, but I think more realistically, if we can get um, uh, decriminalisation of the line, 
so that at least you know all these you know people that go to prison for low-level non-violent drug offenses yeah don't go to prison yeah. <laughs> so that we can keep them in the community yeah. and they can you know um you know carry on and hopefully build their lives yeah. um i mean my ultimate um a goal would be to regulate the illicit drug market now this might sound a little bit um uh controversial yeah um but you know if like i said if you look at the history of drugs uh, and how laws have been passed and um conventions have been put into place what it's basically done is created a marketplace for for drugs to sit which yeah. is uh, you know within the illegal market yeah? yeah um and quite often from my experience you know people at street level de- dealing you know um are not like hardened, you know, um, you know, Tony Montana. Yeah. They're not Tony Montana, basically. Yeah. yeah. These are just people trying to get by. Yeah. yeah? They live on the same council estate as me, mm. um, and and they they they're selling a product that will help them to, you know, um, alleviate themselves from the the poverty that they're living in and some of the struggles. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, if we regulated the drug market which meant we'd put it into the control of the government and they would control the quality. Uh, you'd have, um, you know, be sold from um, certain dispensaries. Mm. Uh, there'd be age restrictions in place, that sort of thing. You know, what about all these people that rely upon the illicit drug trade to make a living? So I would then, you know, dovetail that with support around social entrepreneurship. Why can't we look at business grants and funding and support? Because that entrepreneurial skill is transferable. If yeah. you can hustle and sell, anything and make money from selling whatever it is then you've got skills that are transferable yeah. that would be of massive value to uh, the business community mm-hmm. there, Boy, there we go <laughs> better. Well, that, a, call, a call came in oh, no yeah you talk you talk about social entrepreneurship and um, transferable skills and that's something i've heard of quite a lot so there, there's a there's a quote on instagram that i've seen before in relations to this and it said look if you can if you can, if you're heavily involved in the um, illegal, the dark world, and you're 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 selling drugs or whatever, you have some level of transferable skills, and um, all you have to do is to rechannel that energy into something positive. But um, w- what you said also in regards to um, the deregulation is is quite interesting because there's something there's something interesting that's happening in America and across the world at the moment, and that's the that's the legalization of marijuana. And um, in a lot of the countries where where marijuana is legally available in stores and stuff, there's there's no there's no dark market for it. There's no crime being committed um, amongst dealers or amongst users of of marijuana. And um, in America, there's loads of people now locked in prison, and in particular from the black community from selling from selling weed in essence. And um, now that it's being le- legalized all across the board, should all these people be released? Do you think? Yeah, of course they should. Yeah. yeah. Particularly for non-violent offences, I keep mentioning that. So somebody that hasn't hurt somebody else, yeah, mm. um, that's been, you know, been um, sentenced or uh, embroiled in the criminal justice system, um, absolutely, that that decision should be reversed. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in essence, I'm not condoning anyone use any drug or anything. At the same time, I'm I'm, I'm not. Um, you know, saying that everyone that uses drugs has, has a problem with them, they don't. Um, but the way in which history has brought drugs to us up until, you know, recently with the, um, you know, the, the, the impact of uh, medical cannabis and, and the availability of that demonstrates that, um, you know, there is a different way of looking at it. You can't, um, you know, you can't make a plant illegal. Yeah, it's just it's not your job to do that. You know, 
can't, you got no right to do that? It always depends on who's making money from it. That's that's what tends well, to be it, like the issue. So it's, it's who's controlling it. And if it's if it's the people that are controlling it, the community, then it always seems to be an issue because then the government is not getting their cut of 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 the bread. So it's like, well, you you only have to look at other commodities. You know, like salt and sugar. You know, these are commodities that are regulated. They're quality checked. The government get their taxes on it, and people who that purchase it know the quality of what they're buying. Mm. You know, and a grown up way, an adult way, um, to to deal with drugs across the board would be to do it in a similar way. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's true because I don't think anyone's going to just jump off their addiction anytime soon. It's not that easy to go cold turkey because most people will perish if, if it was to go completely cold turkey. So if we're going to eradicate the, the world of hard drugs that, that causes major health issues, then there's a way that we need to find to wean people off of it. Yeah, and, and, and I'll go back to something I said at the start. So, you know, the vast majority of people that I came into contact with and supported I wasn't dealing with people that were working, that were high flyers, that were, um, you know, got their own mortgage and, and house and free cars and whatever it may be. I didn't see people like that. I saw people that were poor, that mm. had a crap experience at school, that had underlying mental health issues, mm. um, that didn't have the confidence, let alone the skills to go and get a, a job or a career, that were, you know, further um, demonized because there were people that used drugs or alcohol problematically and you know for me you know that that sense of realization that there were deep-rooted societal factors that were disproportionately affecting people is wrong and it shouldn't it's not fair you know so you know that's one of the the, the, the reasons that when we talk about drug policy reform it's not just about reforming the policy around drugs it's about how then do we support society to become much more equal yeah and we need community we need people in the community to stand up and speak out yeah. you know the knowledge that we to um reform society doesn't sit within academics solely it doesn't sit within politicians um boardrooms it sits within the community and communities themselves need to understand how you know they can utilize and activate their experiences because the experiences that they have are invaluable to bringing about these reforms to society yeah. but they need to be given the the opportunities to be able to do that yeah. but how, how, how do we how do we get those opportunities out because it's fair enough speaking out and um and and making noise about it but how do we actively penetrate that 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 room and and get people with those lived experiences on on the table and and giving that real input that real life experience input yeah, so I mean, so so there's you know obvious things like you know you know some of the things that like for example I've been doing and like giving like TEDx talks and and you know through uh, you know not just being not settling for mediocrity within my organisation but actually pushing to change systems. Um, and don't get me wrong, you know, not everybody within society uh, and communities will want to you know be in a position to to bring about change mm. but for me you know knowledge is power if yeah. if if community members underst understood really what's going on like i explained about the history of drug policy and then now they're being affected by that directly you know i'm sure a certain a percentage of people will say well actually that's not fair mm. you know um, these are my experiences of of uh, of life and this is how i've been treated by the police and this yeah. is you know this and this is that um and then you know there's 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 ways um, that you know people can speak up. So um, not just speak up, but actually bring about change. So understand how the the the, the you know the democratic system works mm. here in the UK. You know understand how they could get involved in politics a little bit more. Um, you know 
really be be honest about their experiences. And I know that's easier said than done. You know, not everybody wants to speak about, you know, difficulties they've faced in certain um, uh, in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think as a society, we need to be much more I- embracing of people's lived experiences. So one of the things that I've been working on alongside some other lived experience leaders uh, was to develop a, a, a movement. So mm-hmm. we know that this knowledge exists. We know there's people within communities that are just, you know, doing some wonderful work. You know, they're really kind of transforming lives. They're, they're doing their bit to, to make society a better place. But then there's often barriers to them being able to then progress in certain ways or to be able to influence only up until a certain level. Mm-hmm. So we created something called the Lex Movement, and that's available. It's a, a website that's it's just um, lexmovement.org. Yeah, uh, and that's an opportunity. Yeah. yeah, that's an opportunity for people from the community to join this movement. Mm-hmm. Um um, we are working with funders to make funding specifically available for lived experience leaders. Uh, there's all sorts of research. There's all sorts of videos and all sorts of other information available so that, you know, these people, these lived experience leaders that might might sit in isolation in a council estate in South East London mm. and not know that there's anyone else around them can actually be connected to other people because there's strength in numbers. Yeah. So, you know, you know, there's, there's things that we can do proactively to kind of um, push for uh, the valuing of lived experience. Yeah. Um, but it's not going to happen overnight, you know, but the more people we can get to, to, to you know, come forward uh, and, to, you know, be committed to, to social change, uh, the more likely it is to take place. Whilst at the same time, you know, why can't we have lived experience leaders that are sat in high office in Parliament mm. or, or the CEOs of companies mm. or, you know, chief execs of councils, you know. So it's really about, on one hand, working with the system to make it more amenable. Uh, and on the other hand, how do, how can we, how do we empower uh, communities to, to aspire to achieving those things when often the system around us, like I mentioned about the level of aspirations that people have, have been dumbed down um, because of for lots of different reasons, you know. So we have to continually fight and challenge this in a, in a diplomatic and non-violent way. Well, and most definitely. And um, j- just to touch on one final bit is that I, I think also the breakdown of the policy and making it simplified so people can genuinely understand what policies mean, what, what yeah. policies mean um, on paper and what they mean in action. Because what I tend to find is whenever I'm, well, historically, whenever I was reading policies, whether it be employment policy or governmental yeah. policy, I didn't have a clue what you meant. I didn't have a clue what it meant tangibly as an action. It's just a whole bunch of words that are just scattered together. So possibly getting those policies out there and explaining in such a way that the people on the ground level understand what those policies mean and how it affects their lives on a day-to-day basis and whether that's beneficial for them or non-beneficial. Because as we know that the war on drugs was a clear example of bad policy. And, and if, even if you look at the war on drugs during Reagan time, it, it was you know, it was agenda-driven. Um, yeah. We know now historically that it was... CIA played a part in pumping the drugs into those communities that were being attacked anyway. So it's about understanding what policies mean and what's truly behind those policies as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think and the other thing to mention is that you can have the best, the the most researched, well-written policy uh, in the world. But often where it falls down is the implementation of that policy because that relies on people. Mm. Yeah. So somebody might interpret it in a certain way and then they're off they go and then they implement it in a certain way, yeah. which, might not, which might not be how that policy was meant to be written. So there needs to be some level of accountability and pushback from people that are being affected by it. 
Yeah, most definitely. So, Zani, just a, um, two quick questions before I, I, I let you go on with your day. What, what, would you, what, what advice would you give to someone who's in the situation that you were in before? They, they, they're stuck in a rot, they're addicted to drugs, and um, they've got a really bad family situation and life situation in general. What would you yeah. say to that individual? I'd say that um, you're not alone. Um, I say that um, you know the life that you can uh, build in comparison to what you have now is your birthright. You're entitled to that. Um, if you know, just be really open to understanding how the system around you is working. It may not always be fair. Um, you know, even people around you may not treat you well and, and as they should do. But you, you know, anything that you can do to to muster the 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 power and the and the um, resilience to be able to, to pull through it, do that because then it's going to be so worth your while as long, excuse me, as long as you find your passion, you know, you can't just stop taking what I'm not saying people should stop or should carry on. But what I'm saying is for people who have a problematic relationship with drugs, you can't expect your life to improve unless you find something to replace it with. Yeah. Yeah. So if you just stop taking whatever you're taking and sit there, more than likely, idle. You know, the devil makes work for idle hands. You'll probably yeah. end up going back to it. So you know, just as much effort and thinking you think around how to to get out of your situation, equally you need to put into what you're going to do afterwards. Mm. You know, so you need to be strategic. You know, and think about you know what is it what is it you want to do? What is it that you enjoyed doing when you were younger? What is it that makes you excited? You know that you know your addiction has um, sub subdued within you, and it's re reigniting that. You know, and just just reach out, just speak to people. You know, and not everyone will will care about your experiences. Not everybody will understand them. There'll still be lots of stigma and discrimination. But you've got a, the right to live your life with meaning and purpose, whatever yeah. that looks like for you. Yeah, amazing. And um, just to, just to touch on that, I, I think so. In recent times, I realised that to me, purpose is me voluntarily accepting responsibility. So I accept responsibility for me to be healthy. I accept responsibility for me to treat people well. I accept responsibility for me to educate myself, for me to be good to my family and those are around me, and for me to commit and and contribute to my community as a whole. So you have to realize that everything you're doing is you accepting that responsibility. And if you're stuck in that rut, you have to want to do better for yourself and those around you and, and those that you care about. And if you don't have those around you that you care about, you should always care about yourself and what, what, what's best for you as, as an individual. Like what's going to make you healthier? What's going to make you stronger? What's going to make you better? So that, exactly. that would be my little input I'll add on to that. Oh, definitely, man. And, and just, yeah, def people are, you know, you know, life has got worth. Mm. And we don't always appreciate that. And yeah. sometimes it might take some really difficult, crap, shitty things to happen for mm -hmm. us to realize that. But, you know, this life is a precious gift, man. And, um, you know, there's, you know, one of the things that kind of really that I held on to, particularly when I was detoxing, mm. uh, was that there were other people that have been through this. There's other people going through this right now. I'm not alone. I might not see them. I might not know them. Mm. Um, but as this COVID-19 uh, crisis is showing us, that is that there is an automatic inbuilt um, solidarity that exists. Yeah. You know, yeah. There. You shouldn't have to take something like this for it to come out, but it is there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, th there will be, you know, times in your life where, you know, people are by themselves, that, that's natural. Um, but you have to be proactive about building your networks and make sure that the right networks, not 
networks that will necessarily lead you back down the path that you're trying to get away from, mm. but towards a path where there's greater fulfillment and enlightenment. Yeah, most definitely. Um, do you have any works coming up or any websites that you would like people to check out? So, yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, thank you. I've got my, my website is sunnydadley.com. So, S U N N Y D H A D L E Y.com. You can find my TEDx talk there, Activating Lived Experience mm-hmm. to Create Social Good. Uh, I mentioned the one around lived experience. So, lexmovement.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just if you type Sunny Dadley uh, into your usual. Facebook, um, Facebook, Twitter platforms, LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect. I'm happy to, to share my experiences. I'm happy to, you know, um, offer access to some of the some of the pathways, some of the doorways that I've had to break down over the years for other people to go into. So yeah, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm here as a, an asset for the community. So anything I can do, I'm here to do. Amazing, Sonny. I'm going to put all the details down anyway with all the links to the, the sites and the pages that you've mentioned anyway. And um, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for connecting with me. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. So we're definitely going to catch up. And um, I hope that you and your family stay healthy and stay strong. And we can catch up at some point after all of this has um, subdued. Yeah, man. No, definitely. Thank you. So, and I'll just, can you still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear you. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah. so another call again. Somebody else just called me, came through. Sorry, just blowing no, it out um, but yeah, no, definitely. I'd, I'd love to be able to, to kind of kind of continue yeah. link, being linked in with you. I like what you're doing. I think it's, it's really important. Um, and you know, hopefully there'll be opportunities for us to collaborate again in the future. Most definitely will do. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Then.